Turn with me now in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. We're continuing our sermon series in the book of Hebrews. So in a moment, we'll turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. But before we look at Hebrews chapter 8, let's look together at Jeremiah 31. I'll begin reading in verse 31, and I'll read through verse 37. Jeremiah is a prophet who has the unpleasant calling of preaching to a people near the end of its demise. He is preaching the coming judgment of the Lord and their certain destruction in the exile. And yet he is also setting before them, as it were, a hope of life after death, of a nation after exile. With this in mind, let's look at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 37. Hear now the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day, that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the light for who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord. If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. Amen. The book of Hebrews in chapter 8 will quote at length from this passage, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time unpacking that in a moment. So I want to focus on just one idea that the book of Hebrews has in the back of its mind, although it's not directly quoting, right here from verses 36 and 37. Just the idea that the farther we, as a technologically advanced and scientifically advanced society, reach into the skies, guess what we learn more and more about the world? That it cannot be measured. What happens when you stick up the Hubble telescope? What happens when you replace it with the web? We end up finding how little we know. Our our breadth of computation and comprehension shrinks the farther into space we see. I actually just saw a study this last week. The same thing is true in reverse. You know that the deeper in the ground you go, the less and less we know about what's down there. 
You know how they dispelled all the medieval ideas of what is in the center of the earth. Well, now we're starting to dispel all the modern ideas of what we thought was in the center of the earth. The more deeply we look at our world and the more expansively we look at our universe, the more we realize we have no idea. It is so far beyond us and above us. And God says, in as much as you cannot number the stars, so you cannot number my elect. Or the distance in time that my covenant will stand. So sure are the promises of God. With that hope, with that certainty, with that confidence in your hearts, turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 7 through 13. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, roughly the second half of this chapter. In the first half, we saw how Jesus has a superior or better covenant established on better promises. It's there in verse 6. But now we'll look at how it is new. It is not only a better covenant, it is a new covenant. And we will consider the newness of the covenant here this morning. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 through 13. Here again, the word of the Lord. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because, finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Amen. Amen. In 525 AD, a Scythian monk named Dionysius first coined the phrase Anno Domine, A.D. He wrote it after the date to try and change the nature of the calendar. It would take 400 years before it would catch on, largely due to the work of the historian with one of the finest names in all of historiography, the Venerable Bede. He's the one that really coins the phrase and puts it into common use. And from his day until a few years ago, early 2000s, the ascendant way of keeping time was to say it is 2023 AD, Anno Domine, the year of our Lord. 
But it is interesting to go back to 525 and realize that Dionysius actually didn't coin that phrase as a way to keep time. He was trying to combat errant eschatology. He was trying to correct his fellow believers' mistaken belief that there was some future glorious time of Christ that they were to await hopelessly and helplessly in the present age. And he wanted to reinforce the present rule and reign of King Jesus. And so he started going around saying, Anno Domine. This is the year of the Lord. This is what the Holy Spirit wants us to learn in Hebrews chapter 8. He wants us to grasp the good news. That we live in the days of Jesus Christ. You live in Jesus' days. His days of grace. His days of salvation. Where He is ruling and reigning to the good of His church and the glory of His name. And so you must make space for Him in your life. Make space for Him in your heart, in your mind. Make space for Him in your marriage and in your home. Make space for Him in your work and in your commerce. Make space for Him in the world because these are His days. The days that belong to Him. Now think about this. Look at with me at verse 7 and 8. Notice that we are told that the first covenant had a fault. A flaw. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no covenant would have been sought then no place would have been sought for the second. Because finding fault with them, he says. It makes sense. In our common language today, we would simply say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If the first covenant was doing the job, it wouldn't have gone away. There wouldn't have been a second. If we were getting it right the first time, there wouldn't be a need to reteach us a second time. The Holy Spirit points out that the logic is inexorable. The fact that there is a new mediator, the fact that there is a new covenant, the fact that there are new promises, shows that the prior ones didn't do what they were intended to do. There is a fault in them. There is a flaw in them. And right away, we have to confront the bad news. There is a fault in us. You see, when the Holy Spirit says that the first covenant had not been faultless but flawed, he speaks of the relationship that Israel had with God. There was something fundamentally wrong, flawed and fault, about their relationship with God. And it couldn't continue. This is our first sad reality. My friends, God has found fault with you. There is something fundamentally wrong about your relationship with God. You, by nature, are not in a right relationship with God. That's why you need someone else to make it right for you. The fact that Jesus even exists, the fact that the church even exists, the fact that gospel preaching even exists, proves that we, by nature, are flawed and full of fault. It is likewise true in all of our relationships. In all of our performances and our callings. 
God finds fault with us. There is no one who does good, no, not one. Because we are so prone to disbelieve that, particularly about ourselves, the Holy Spirit said that twice, once in the Psalms and once in Paul. That both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, we should come to the inescapable realization. God finds fault in our relationship to Him. In our relationship to the world, in our relationship to one another, we are not faultless. And this is step one. Is it not said commonly in our culture that the first step in solving a problem is admitting you have one? We must adopt this bad news. We must accept the humiliation of our souls, the reduction of our self image. We are not faultless. In our marriages, we are at fault. In our homes, we are at fault. In our work, we are at fault. Indeed, there is no calling that we have not stained with our fault. We all have sinned and fallen short of His glory. This truth has dire consequences. In verse 8... The Holy Spirit through the prophet Jeremiah goes on to say, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He promises good news that will be delivered to us in a moment here in Hebrews 8. Good news for Israel and Judah. Now remember when Jeremiah is prophesying, there is no house of Israel. It's been wiped away by the Assyrians. And he is preaching to a house of Judah who is about to be wiped away by the Babylonians. Very soon there will be no house of Israel or house of Judah on a map. They will be erased from history. They will be erased from geography. And in the face of that coming destruction and doom, Jeremiah says, but don't worry, there are days that are coming after that death. Days of a new covenant. But first, remember the old covenant. A covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Here, the Holy Spirit refers back to the Exodus. That taking by the hand is a metaphor for Moses. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, Moses took Israel by the hand and walked them out of Egypt through the promised land right to the edge of the Jordan River. That is the covenant that was established at Sinai through Moses. But according to verse 9, they did not continue in that covenant. This is the reality of the flawed first covenant. We can't stay in it. We don't stay in it. We cannot perform to a suitable level to keep a righteousness before God. We cannot obey so thoroughly, faultlessly, and flawlessly that God remains well pleased with us as His good and faithful servants. Instead, according to verse 9, I disregarded them, says the Lord. He dismisses them from the land. They are exiled. He disregards them. They are no longer objects of favor or love. The blessings dry up and the cursings fall. The reality is, is if we are to relate to God through Moses, we are all condemned and cursed. 
the law of Moses cannot save. It can only condemn. The law of Adam cannot save. It can only condemn. Indeed, we are cursed before God. A people in whom he has found fault. A people who are flawed before his holy eyes and deserving of exile from his gracious land. We pray, give us this day our daily bread, but we don't deserve it. We pray, give your loved ones sleep, but we don't deserve it. He has found fault with us. We are, to a man, to a woman, to a child, covenant breakers, worthy of his curse and disregard. We are no better than our fathers. We live so often like citizens of an old covenant, visiting curse upon one another, cursing ourselves before God with our sin, such that our houses are worthy of eradication, that we should not dwell here any longer. This is the essential bad news. But then he immediately goes into the good news. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. There's a new covenant. God says, now I will do it differently. You see, God in all his wisdom and in all his grace had given a covenant in Moses that from the beginning was faulted and flawed. It was designed by God to be insufficient. It was part of the original plan. So that the people of God should grow up and realize. The answer lies not in my religious performance. The answer lies not in my conformity to a law. The answer lies in someone else. In a savior. And there is now a new covenant. A better covenant. Our relationship with God will not be based on our conformity to His law. Our relationship with God will not be based on our piety and our performance. Our relationship to God will no longer be rooted in me. My relationship to God will be rooted in someone else. And so it must be for all your human and created relationships. You see, too often, we are living in covenant relationships with one another and creation like little legalists who will only give love to those who obey us and who will only give love to those who will please us. We treat each other like Moses, veiling the glory of the gospel when we come down from the mountain. Putting yokes and burdens on each other's necks, but not lifting a finger to help each other. We must instead make space in those relationships for a new covenant. A new way of relating to each other. A new way of relating to the world around us, the creation itself. A way that is based first and foremost and fundamentally in the way that God relates to us. So how does God treat us? 
The Holy Spirit, through the prophet Jeremiah, through the anonymous author of the book of Hebrews, gives us four changes to keep in mind. Indeed, to keep in heart. As we now relate to God in a new way, in a new covenant, as we relate to one another in a new way, first, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. No longer will obedience be coercive. No longer will it be enforced by the external imposition of law. Moses will not come down from the mountain with these great big tablets of stone, which he shatters at their feet in destruction as they have broken the law already. How long did it take for us to keep the law? We broke it before we had it. We were born and conceived in sin, says David in Psalm 51. But here, the prophet promises a new nature. A new heart. A rebirth. I will put my law in their minds. They will have a new mind. They won't need a law written in stone. They will have a law written in synapse and sinew. Within their brains will be the law. Because according to the Apostle Paul, they will have the mind of Christ. The law will be in their mind because they will have the mind of Christ who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. They will think love because they will think Christ. They will have the law written on their hearts. That is, they will have a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh as was promised. A heart that is born from above through the the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. This will be the new law. They will love Christ and do all that he commands. And according to John's epistles, he has commanded us to love. We will love one another because we have been loved by him. This is the new law. This is the new commandment. And John reminds us, it's the old commandment, really. Just summarize. If we were to take a full summary of all the law of Moses... It was so heavy, so burdensome, so coercive. And if we were just to sum it up in a small word, it would be this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It is but love. And Jesus comes into the world and makes a new covenant, makes a new person. He loves you and says, you who have been loved, go and love one another. This is the mind of Christ. This is the heart of Christ that we now have in Christ. But secondly, the new change is, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Again, like the law, this doesn't sound new, does it? This is the refrain of every covenant. Abraham, I am your very great reward. David, I will be a father to your children. They will be your sons to me. I will be your God and you will be my people. Moses said it. All the prophets said it. It is the refrain throughout the older covenant. And yet here it is visited in a new and different way. For God and Israel were in a relationship in which there were types and shadows. Images and metaphors. Symbols. But we have a person. 
We don't have God represented in a bleeding lamb on an altar. We have God in the flesh. His Spirit given to dwell in our flesh as we become temples of the Holy Spirit. He is our God and we are His people in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We must make space for this in our relationships. We must open ourselves up to the reality of our covenant relationships. That no longer are we under the coercive burden of the law. We are under the compulsion of the love of Christ. Paul says it is the love of Christ that compels me. Beloved, let me be plain. If it is not the love of Christ, then why are you doing it? If it is not because Christ has loved me, if it is not rooted in I love Jesus, then why are you doing it? I am by nature and upbringing a shy middle child. I would love to not be in front of you. I really would. In every classroom I've ever sat in, I'm that student back there. But the love of Christ compels me to preach. Is this how we parent? Not that the law should coerce behavioral modification, but that the love of Christ would compel us and our children. Is this how we marry? Is this how we do our work, our jobs? Is this how we live in the world? With relationships that are shaped by the space in the center, which is the love of Christ. He's loved me. So I'm going to love this work. He's loved me. So I'm going to love these people. The love of Christ compels me. We need to make space in our relationships and in our lives for this principle. He is my God. I am His people. We are His people. No offense. You're not my God. And the day the congregation comes between me and my faithfulness to Christ, you don't have a pastor. I will not choose you over Jesus. And that has to be the heart of every husband, of every wife, of every parent, of every child. I love you, my bride. I love you, my groom. But you come between me and Jesus, you're going to lose and it's going to be bad. Jesus is first. He is my God and I am His. This is the only way to have a healthy marriage. This is the only way to have a healthy home. This is the only way to have a healthy job. To say, I have a God and you're not Him. He is Christ. And He loves me. And His love for me compels me. The third one is, none of them shall say to the neighbor, to the brother, know the Lord. For all of them shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is sometimes, oftentimes, misunderstood as an unfulfilled promise of universal salvation in the church. That is not what this is. Back in Jeremiah 31, this language of know the Lord, they shall all know me, is in the context of the word husband. 
And from Genesis on, when a husband knows a wife, she gets pregnant. This is not an intellectual awareness. We will live in churches where no preaching or teaching is needed. Because everyone understands intellectually God. That's not what this is promising. That's not what this is. And instead... Instead, what God is here promising is this experience of the love of God in the church. That He shall relate to us as a community with a loving headship as a husband. No longer shall we say, your servants, but as Jesus said to His disciples, my friends. We shall know the mind of Christ. We shall know the heart of Christ. And we shall be known by Him. Living as friends with Him. As the bride of Christ. United to Him in mercy. Do we make space for this truth in our congregation? For this reality? Do we make space for this in our relationships and in our callings? To recognize that it is God who's at work. One of the greatest temptations in ministry, especially pastoral ministry, is to meddle in other people's lives as if you were the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest challenges in ministry, especially pastoral ministry, is getting out of Jesus' way and letting Him do the work. No one will run around playing mediator. No one will run around playing Messiah. Everyone will know that it is Jesus alone who is Lord. And it is Jesus who saves. This will be the dividing line. All true Christians will say, that Jesus is God in the flesh, my Savior. I know Him personally. I have experienced His husbandly love and care for me. I have Felt the reality of his covenant affection. I am in this bond of love with him who knows me, who walks with me and cares for me. He is my head, and I am part of his bride. And if I am describing a feeling or an experience or a reality that is entirely alien to you, please talk to me after worship. Because this is the difference between a Christian church and a cult. This is the difference between heresy and Christianity. Do you, beloved, live in a new covenant? Live in a new relationship with God, which has one mediator, Jesus Christ. We know God because Christ has made him known. He alone is the mediator of this covenant. The fourth one, verse 12. Rich and deep and convicting, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. God says through His Holy Spirit to us today that our unrighteousness awakens His mercy. What does unrighteousness awaken in you? 
if I were to watch your marriage or your parenting. And heaven help me if you were to watch mine. Would you see mercy flowing into unrighteousness? This is the new covenant. I will be merciful to the unrighteous. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. God God says, I will not treat you as sinners. I will not relate to you according to your unrighteousness. I will not handle you like the unholy. Your lawless deeds will not be the basis of my reaction to you. Your actions, your performance, unrighteousness, sins, and lawless deeds, the sum total of who you are, it will not be the foundation of our relationship. I won't act on them. I won't remember them. I will remember Christ crucified. And I will remember the gift of His righteousness to you. And that's how I'll treat you. This is a new relationship. This is a new covenant. And God will relate to you on the basis of Christ's work alone, not yours. But do we live in our earthly relationships like we're in the new covenant? Is that how we react to the unrighteousness of those around us? Is that how we react to the sins and lawless deeds? Do we keep count? Do we keep score? Do we have that list, that log of sins? And we remember them. Do we have that bitterness in heart? That proud conceit that disdains the failures and shortcomings and faults? Have we drunk from the well of cancel culture and says, if you can't meet my standard, you can't be part of my community? Have we forgotten the gospel that says, I have a new relationship and your unrighteousness can't undo my love and your sins cannot break my mercy and your lawless deeds cannot extinguish my favor and compassion for you. That's how your father treats you. That's the covenant relationship you're in because of Christ. Let us treat one another the same way. Look finally at verse 13. In that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. It's invalid. Friends, you who love have been loved can't go on not loving. It's obsolete. That's the old way. It's invalid. We've been loved. Let us love. We were sitting in a premarital counseling seminar class. We were giving it. And this is a long time ago. And someone asked that great important question. How far must I go? Being a preacher who can sense the moment I sat up and I said, no farther than Jesus. And the groom-to-be went, 
because he knew the gospel. Beloved, you've been loved. Love. You've been forgiven. Forgive. Your unrighteousness was met with a tsunami of mercy. Don't grow weary in doing good. Be merciful. You live with God in a new covenant. Live with one another in a new covenant. A relationship of love and of mercy. It's obsolete. Don't go back to the old way. It is growing old and it is ready to vanish away. This I find a great comfort and a great hope. No longer, not only rather, is it invalid for you who have been loved so extravagantly to be so stingy with love. It's obsolete. It's invalid. Don't do it. Not only that, but that old way of living in bitterness and selfishness, that that old way is growing old and ready to vanish away. You're not that far from glory. And with every Sabbath that you come here to hear the sermon, you're a little closer to glory. The old way is vanishing. The way of sin and of sorrow and of selfishness with every day, with every week, with every Sabbath, you are ascending to the sanctified glory that is to come. It is vanishing. It is vanishing. Because you live in the days of Jesus. These are Jesus' days. Where He's taking the giant eraser of the new covenant and he is scrubbing out sin and he is scrubbing out sorrow and he is relating to you in love and mercy and he is calling you to join him in that great work beloved these are the days of Jesus make space for him please pray with me Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that we are not under law, but under Christ who fulfilled the law for us. We give you thanks that he has given us a new commandment, the commandment that was from of old, that we should love one another. But we also give you thanks that he has given us all the means and power by which we fulfill this commandment, that we love because he first loved us. And so, Father, give us obedient hearts today. Give us the mind of Christ today. And let us love as we have been loved. Let us live in a relationship of compassion and mercy with one another as you are compassionate and merciful to us. Our Father, we thank you for these precious truths. As you have said in your word today, put them in our minds. Write them on our hearts that we might know you are our God and we are your people these things we ask in your son's name Amen